Saving money on groceries is about to get even easier because a brand new Walmart neighborhood market is opening soon near you. Enjoy low prices you can trust every day on your grocery favorites like fresh produce, quality meats, and more. Plus, Walmart's friendly pharmacists can take care of all your prescription needs. At Walmart Neighborhood Market, shopping and saving are simple and convenient. Your new Walmart Neighborhood Market opens January 27th at the corner of Sumter Boulevard and West Price Boulevard in Northport. Save money, live better. Walmart. Blog Talk Radio. and crumbles are all natural antibiotic free with no animal byproducts formulated just for laying hens our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious tasty strong shelled eggs from our family to yours feed your hens the way nature intended pure wholesome goodness Kalmbach Feeds find a dealer at KalmbachFeeds.com that's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H Feeds.com or order your layer pellets and crumples today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Welcome to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. My name is Andy Schneider, but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, national spokesperson for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds program, and editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and, of course, living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Once again, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Calm Box Feeds. We've got a great show lined up for you today. It is Friday, of course, special Friday episode all about avian influenza. My special guest today is Dr. Jack Shear, DVM, PhD. He's Associate Deputy Administrator for Veterinary Services under USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, uh, APIS. And he's going to be joining us. He is on the ground in Iowa. He's been there for quite some time dealing with the current avian influenza outbreak that we're dealing with right now. It really started just before the end of, of last year, December, I believe it was, over on the West Coast. 
And then, of course, uh, progressively moved a little bit further uh, east. Uh, and uh, Iowa was hit pretty hard with their egg producers, as you know, if you've been following it. So, again, great show today. Uh, it doesn't get much higher up the food chain than Dr. Jack Shear regarding uh, the avian influenza outbreak and the USDA. And, um, hey, you're, you're getting this information firsthand from folks on the ground there in Iowa. Very proud to, to have him and welcome him to the show today. So uh, we'll be getting ready. Uh, he'll be calling in shortly, and uh, we're going to go a short break and get that uh, out of the way, and then we'll come back and uh, welcome Doctor to the show and talk about all the uh, recent activity with the avian influenza. I'll stay with us, folks. We'll be back after this short break. When you need an incubator, think Brency, the incubation specialist. Brency has been a world-leading manufacturer of incubators for over 30 years. Incubators from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity control and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Visit them online at Brency.com. Brency spelled B-R-I-N-S-E-A. That's Brency.com or call 1-888-667-7009. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and save 10% on their incubators, brooders, egg candlers, and other incubation accessories. When you need an incubator, think Frenzy, technology you can trust. You've just entered a dimension of dirty water, a dimension of poop-filled water, a dimension of stagnant water. You've crossed into the dirty waterer zone. But up ahead is your signpost to cleaner water, the Bright Tap Chicken Waterer. The Bright Tap Waterer is fully covered. Chickens drink from special valves, so dirt and droppings can't get into the water. Chickens get sparkling clean water. You get less work. No poop-filled water pans for you to touch or wash out. Bright Tap, clean water made simple. Visit chickenwaterer.com to learn more. That's chickenwaterer.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com. Or call them to find a retailer near you at one 888 824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Come back. Come back, back. Come back. 
From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of The Chicken Whisperer. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with The Chicken Whisperer. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky... You'll know it's Super Chicken. All righty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. Hope you've had a great week. We've had some great shows this week with Peter Brown, also known as the Chicken Doctor and founder of FirstStateVetSupply.com. He's going to be joining us again this Monday. Don't have a topic uh, quite yet, but he'll be joining us, of course, Monday. And then next Thursday, poultry scientist and professor Dr. Bridget McRae, PhD, will be joining us. And she'll be sharing a a new study uh, that was just released um, that I think everybody will be very interested in. That'll be next Thursday with Dr. Dr. McRae. So I hope you can tune into those episodes as we learn more. Uh, from the experts about our backyard poultry. Got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, we're going to be talking with Dr. Jack Shear, uh, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine and PhD. He's Associate Deputy Administrator for Veterinary Services under the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. You all know uh, I am the uh, National Spokesperson for the USDA APHIS Biosecurity for Birds program, so you do hear a lot about biosecurity here. And I have a few questions uh, for Doc. And in Iowa, he's been on the ground like I said earlier, it doesn't. You don't get too much further up the food chain uh, with uh, USDA or this uh, outbreak. So we're glad and proud to welcome him on the show, and um, he's going to give us some current updates about what's going on there on the ground in Iowa and about the outbreak. Uh, we're going to ask him about kind of what they expect uh, this fall when the birds start to migrate uh, again, especially along the, the east coast where there's the big uh, broiler uh, producers. And I have some questions that. Um, uh, that a lot of our fans and uh, and uh, listeners and uh, that, that have uh, the reading of the the Chicken Whisperer magazine and whatnot that I posted on the Facebook page. So we'll have a few questions for him as well. So I'm going to go to the phone lines right now, and uh, my switchboard's going to cooperate today, and we're going to welcome uh, Dr. Jack Shear. Welcome to the show, Doc. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, sorry about the technical problems we had earlier. That's a uh, Few and far between. Uh, I do travel on the road a lot, like you are. So there's sometimes we have the te- technical difficulties, but I think everything today is sounding loud and clear. So that's good. If you would first start off telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, um, and then kind of what your position is at USDA and kind of what your uh, responsibilities and roles are there, and then we'll get on with the uh, outbreak. Well, I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in Castle West, Iowa. Uh, my family's still there. Uh, I've also got family that's farming. Fort Dodge area from my on my wife's side. Um, I went to school at Iowa State University. That's where I got my bachelor's science, my DVM, and my master's degree. Then I went on to uh, attend school at the University of Wisconsin, where I've got a joint P, both for science and microbiology. I practiced uh, veterinary medicine for uh, about five years. Then I uh, joined the USDA in 1990. Uh, I've been with them ever since. I started out as a field veterinarian. 
Then I worked as an epidemiologist, then as an area veterinarian in charge of the state of Wisconsin. Uh, then I moved to um, Colorado and I became the uh, associate regional director in charge of about 12 states in that part of the country. And eventually I moved to be the, the regional director in the eastern region of 27 states and three territories. We reorganized and I'm currently the associate director under Dr. John Clifford, who's the uh, chief veterinary officer of the United States. And I work directly in the PM and uh, work with all domestic programs. That's my responsibility currently with the USDA, which brought me out to Iowa and Minnesota for the high path AIL. Okay, great, awesome. Uh, obviously, um, I, I was reading a couple of uh, posts uh, about your background and your love of animals, which was was an, I can't even remember where I actually I had saw that or if it was sent to me, but it was uh, it was fascinating your your work and and really your love of what you do and and the animals as well. So um, um, thank you for sharing all of that uh, with us. We'll get to the questions a little bit later. I know our listeners would like to know because, um, you know, it's it varies week to week what you hear in the news and, and whether it's accurate or not. So uh, maybe first off, if you can kind of give us a, an overview of, of the outbreak and then kind of maybe what's, if anything, has changed really really currently. Are we are we weeding our way kind of out of this in the hot summer months we, we talk about? And that's one of the questions I have for you a little bit later. We'll address about the um, the media and, and, and things that was released about this. That when once temperatures get above 70, we'll probably see this go away over the hot summer months, and then may rear its ugly head again in the fall when we have migration again. Blah blah blah. But um, and we'll get to those questions because we have several for you. Um, and uh, but if you can kind of give us an overview of the outbreak. And then currently, kind of what's taking place, where we stand in the, in the outbreak. And then after that, we'll talk about maybe what, what to expect in the fall. Sure, Andy. Um, this outbreak generally has been moved about by wild birds. We know that the virus uh, started in Asia, and we saw it spreading there uh, in earlier years. 2008, they had outbreaks in, in, in Taiwan and China and different parts of the country there. Those birds... Uh, follow similar migration to our birds in that in the in the winter months they're they're in the southern part of of the, those that continent and in the summer months they migrate to the north north parts of Russia and and the peninsula up there. Those birds mix and come across into Alaska and upper parts of Canada. So in two thousand fourteen we saw a mixing of those birds with our birds and we saw the virus come down in the fall of twenty fourteen. We saw outbreaks in backyards in Washington and Idaho and Oregon and a couple of commercial flocks in California. And then things went quiet while the birds were on their on their winter nesting grounds. While they were down in their winter nesting grounds with the southern parts of, of the continent, they mixed with the birds in the Pacific Flyway. So we had the the, the Pacific Flyway excuse me, birds mixing with those birds in the Mississippi and the Missouri flyway. So when those birds became infected, and then when spring came, they flew up, spring of spring of 2015, they flew up north, and as they flew up, they we saw pinpoint outbreaks in Arkansas and Missouri, some of the southern states, and then they came to rest in Iowa. And, and that's where the, the biggest part of the outbreak occurred. As they moved forward, or toward the nesting grounds in the north, that's that's what occurred. They spread the virus, and we saw initially 
uh, point source outbreaks in Iowa and Minnesota. Then the virus is it's very easy virus to people. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can. It broke up a little bit, but you're you're okay. Okay, I I don't understand what that beep 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 was, but um, then then the virus uh, got into Iowa and Minnesota, and at first it was in turkey flocks, and then we got it into the the egg flocks. Uh, the, the problem with this virus is it's as the birds produce large amounts of virus, it spread very easily. So the virus load increased. It's very easily moved by people, machinery, uh, different types of. Uh, there's even discussion that at small distances it could be moved by the wind. Uh, with with under the best of circumstances, this virus dries out very easily, so it needs to have a cold, wet uh, type environment for it to move. So. We were in a crisis situation. We had um, there's been 100, uh, 108 flocks in Minnesota, and I think 77 flocks uh, in Iowa that became infected. Large number of birds, about 50 million birds in total. Uh, probably about um, seven million of those were turkeys. The rest were laying hens and infected the population nationwide uh, because of those large numbers. We were in a crisis mode. If you want to interrupt me anytime, you can. Um, yeah, no problem. Yeah, crisis... we just got to go. Okay. We were in yeah. crisis mode up until about four weeks ago when we were trying to get ahead of the virus and, and euthanize the birds uh, in a humane manner and get them depopulated as well as uh, disposed of. We're, we're now at a point where that's all been accomplished and all the farms are in, a, in the, what we call the cleaning and disinfection mode, meaning they're dealing with getting into their barns, getting uh, the, the birds, the, excuse me, the remainder of the manure and dealing with cleaning their barns so that they can restock. Um, the crisis, as far as the disease spread, is over. The weather helped us. Uh, like I said, this virus doesn't survive well in the mother. It dries out and it dies. And if we can prevent that from spreading, uh, I think we are in good shape. Most of the contaminated birds and all the materials uh, have pretty much been handled as far as the birds. Now we're dealing with dealing with the manure and the composting. Producers are working hard to get back into business. So that's when, that's where we're at now. When do you know? Ahead, if you have it in front of you, when the last um, discovery, when the last form, the last excuse me, the last farm that was uh, the tested positive. Sure. How yeah. how many days or week? When when was the last uh, finding? The last finding was June 16th in Iowa and June 3rd in Minnesota. So we're a good month past any infection that's been detected. Okay. There's a, you mentioned temperature just a second ago, so I'll, I'll uh, address that real quick because uh, we, we are not scientists and, and we see this with the, what media puts out and then we're like, uh, it sparks questions. And I think a lot of these are, are good questions with the, with the temperature mode. And uh, this is asked a lot. I've seen it not just on my page but others. If the disease doesn't thrive well in hot temperatures, um, mm -hmm. when it does enter the bird's body, which I guess a chicken is 103 to 106, somewhere in that area, um, how how does it live if, if the core temperature of the bird is so hot and it doesn't like hot temperatures, why doesn't it okay. die at that point? That's a really good question, and that's the difference between being inside the host and being out in an environment. Inside the host, it's a wet environment, and it, it goes into the cells. The temperature yeah. inside the bird is not what kills it. But what happens is the hot temperatures outside the bird, it's an envelope virus, and it dries out. 
Once it dries out, it's dead. So it needs to stay moist to survive. And what we rely on is the temperatures to dry it out. So it's not a matter of the heat killing it. It's a matter of it being desiccated and it dries out and it's dead. Gotcha. That makes sense. So yeah. So so it's that that temperature doesn't necessarily um, have have the effect of it's it's the temperature helping uh, the host where the virus is being with the poop, I guess. Um, and, and whatever is, is drying it out, and that's killing it, not necessarily just hitting that magical 70 number. Right. It has, it has to have, inside the host, it can survive very well at, at high temperatures. But, you know, because what's chicken's temperature runs between 103 and 106, and on the time of day that you take it. So if you look at that and, and say, well, it's, it's, it's temperature, it's really not temperature, it's the desiccation of the virus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, next question, since we, we've kind of rolled right in, into that, and um, uh, this uh, early on uh, over on the West Coast, we saw, and I don't know exactly the percentage of the, the backyard birds infected versus the commercial birds. Um, we've seen more commercial uh, more recently with the outbreak in, in the Midwest. And so one question uh, is, and, and in fact, I was talking with um, uh, the PR firm that handles USDA and APHIS, and and uh, we were talking about it on the phone saying, wow, we must be doing a great job educating the backyarders about biosecurity because I think it's up to date, even today, uh, uh, somewhere around 10 or 12 percent of the total number of farms infected were, were backyards. So that leads mm-hmm. into our question. And, and from what y'all seen, your, your opinion on it, your education, your guesswork, why do you think if the backyard birds, uh, we'll just say we backyarders may not have uh, the best biosecurity we hope that we've been we've been teaching it a long time so we hope people are getting on board with that but why and they're outside a lot where the commercial birds are more um, inside um, contained why we're seeing more of the commercial uh, birds infected than than the backyard flocks that's a really good question I think um, the best way I can answer that is this concentration effect mm-hmm. you know I'll, I'll draw a comparison for instance if Let's say you take your child to a daycare center and there's 50 kids at that daycare center and they get the flu. Pretty soon every kid at that daycare center is going to get the flu. But if you take your kid to a private care provider and the flu never hits that private care provider, your your son or daughter escapes the flu. That's kind of the way I look at the backyard flocks versus the commercial. Commercialists are large concentrations of poultry. If a few get infected, they eventually infect the whole group. Large, large volumes of viruses, viruses then produced, and then it and then it, it, it moves through the entire facility. As a backyard owner, he he's got that seclusion, that isolation, and that that ability to prevent that large introduction of virus. Go ahead. Is the so if you have one one farm that has say ten houses and. Mm-hmm you find it in four houses, is that still marked as one um, farm, one outbreaker because it's in four separate houses? That would be four different when we're looking at the numbers. Uh, that, that's uh, number-wise, it's one. It, we look at the facility, and if it's one contiguous, meaning they, they operate as one operation, the same female, they uh, move between the birds, that sort of thing, we usually look at that as one outbreak. So we've had mm-hmm. some farms with as many as 25, Houses on the egg side that were were uh, involved, and we count that as one. 
Okay, got it, got it. Um, that helps okay. helps as well. If sure. um, have you found are there? Um, we talk about the H5, uh, I guess the N2, H5N8, and you guess these different strains. Um, is it when you go to say that one farm with maybe 25 houses? Um, is more than likely when you test those 25 houses, if, if you find birds in each house, is in this outbreak all the same strain? Have you come across where, wow, we've got both strains on this same farm, or has it been this outbreak pretty much? Has that ever happened with two different two of the different strains, H5N2, H5N8, uh, on one farm? We have seen with low-path different strains on the same farm mm-hmm. at times. With this one, um, we have seen the H5N8 seems to be more, more and it was initially what we saw in the backyard flocks. And then it switched to an H5N2, and that's mostly what we've seen in the commercial flocks. We haven't seen mixed um, mixed uh, high paths on the same farm. That, that's that's not we haven't seen that. Most of them been H5N2. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen. I mean, if there was two viable strains out there moving and being uh, transmitted, uh, we we could find that. That's that these birds are not. Immune to one because they've got the other, if you know what I mean. They can be infected by or two, and we have seen that in the low path. We test we, we test for low path. We don't worry about low path unless it's an H5 or an H7. We've seen other low paths that do infect poultry across the nation, and and ducks again and geese and waterfowl are really good transmitters and carriers of the low path virus, and they move that around too. Um. Great segue into this next question that often comes uh, and, and gets posted, because um, we know from education, we know from from the information we read that um, the wild birds, the waterfowl that that end up kind of spreading this, uh, they land in the field, they land in the ponds. When they take off, they defecate a lot. When they land, they'll defecate uh, and spread that around. Um, we understand that they can be carriers of this, but don't show any signs or symptoms and don't become ill. And uh, a lot of people read that, and then they look at the, the backyard chickens becoming ill, and, and then the commercial birds becoming ill. And, and a lot of times they'll think, okay, what is the um, uh, what's the underlying reason for for that? Is is it the type of is it the type of virus? Is it because these birds are out in the wild? They have I don't know better immune system. Like a lot of times that's thrown out there, doc. Well, you know. The, why did they not get sick? And if there's a, a, a um, some way to find out that and implement that into our other birds of why, how, you know, why are they getting, why can they carry it and not get sick? And these other birds do. Is it species? Is it maybe out in the wild better immune system? Um, what what is uh, what? Why do you think that um, they they carry it and not get sick, but our our chickens and, and the commercial birds do get sick from this? Yeah, I think I'll put it in simple terms. For a, for a virus to survive, it has to adapt to its host. If it kills everything that it that infects, then eventually it dies out too. So this virus has adapted to dabbling ducks and waterfowl, and that's how it's found a way to survive and move around. So it's it doesn't it doesn't affect or it doesn't have its its toxic effects. So to speak, on the dabbling ducks, they they don't have the system does their system doesn't work to turn on the high path, the the, the toxigenic effects of 
of the, the virus itself, but they can carry it. And so they, it's kind of like um, they carry the virus. They're not affected by it, but then they encounter, the virus encounters a species that doesn't have the ability not to respond or react, such as chickens, and the virus asserts itself there, and, and the uh, pathogenic effects take, take, take over, and they, they kill the bird. So okay. it, it goes to that ability. It's not even a, it's not the immune response per se or the lack thereof. It's the ability of that host animal to carry that virus without becoming infected by the pathogenicity of the virus, whereas chickens don't have that ability. And, okay. and it's just a difference, I think, in receptor sites and the ability of that virus to respond to their the individual animal. Okay. Another number we hear a lot uh, with, with the chicken population is um, this kills, this kills fast. We're looking at 90% of a flock uh, being um, uh, dying from if if they get infected with this. Um, and so to kind of understand that, um, have there been, so so based on just that, that general information, 90% uh, will, this, it's a fast killer, 90% will die. The other 10%, and I know that varies. That's just a general number. Um, do those chickens? Do have we have we? And I'm sure someone studied this long enough. Um, those 10% just didn't get it, or they had it and then lived through it. And if we've had chickens that have lived through this uh, contamination of getting this virus, um, are people studying why and saying, hey? You know, here's the elite group. Let's try to find out why, and then maybe breed to those, or figure out why they lived. Maybe they've got something going on that we need to use and and, and research and breed to, so we can have. A, I don't want to say natural resistance, but if that 10% actually lived through it, do some birds live through this? That somebody is studying why and figuring out, hey, maybe we need to concentrate on this and spread the goodness, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, I understand. That's a good question. Um, they have seen um, on farms that. Uh, some birds do survive. Um, what we've seen is it, it, it depends. It's kind of been age dependent in turkeys. After turkeys reach uh, or pass, and not that all turkeys couldn't be affected, but it seems to impact the older turkeys more quickly, and it kills more efficiently if they're bigger birds. So okay. at 11 weeks, that's where we see most infection, and it's pretty. Instead of this virus is a pretty efficient killer. Um, in chickens, uh, it doesn't move as quickly. It does infect them. Now you've asked, can those that survive, has anybody looked at, at that? Let me just say, talk about it this way. We know that commercially, the genetics of turkeys and chickens, it's, it's pretty narrow. I mean, there, there's not that much genetic diversity in, in the layer flocks of the, of the world. There's only three uh, companies worldwide that even produce the different lines of chickens. Uh, and I believe there's only five in the, in the turkey industry that I, I, I'm not sure about that number. So that, that genetic base is very narrow. So if a disease kills efficiently and their genetics is pretty similar or almost identical, it's just that the birds that didn't get it, they were, they were lucky. And they, they, they were either not in the virus stream or they were in a part of the house that didn't get the, the wind currents or they went off by themselves. It just depends. Uh, the fans didn't blow it to them. Um, I would call those lucky birds. But to look at them genetically and say, and this was a question that came up. We had a, a primary breeder at one of our meetings, and they asked them, 
is there a difference in genetic diversity in these birds that survive? And he said, no. And the other question was, could we breed that immunity similar to what you said about the ducks back into the birds? And he said that would take us about 20 years to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is we've bred for a production animal, an animal that grows quickly, lays a lot of eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, in the turkey, turkey industry, we want one animal that grows fast. And same with the broiler industry. And in the egg laying industry, we want an efficient egg layer. So we've bred those genetic characteristics into them. In that, we've, we've narrowed, in that process, we've narrowed the genetic diversity. The genetic diversity that is, is, is out there is really in the backyard flocks. They still have the, you know, the, the primary breeds, the sort of the, the standard breeds. They have all that still. And, and that's important that that's maintained because those birds form the backbone or the basis of the commercial birds that we have today. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then um, there was another question I had, but I don't know if I'm Oh, talking about uh, biosecurity. I know that uh, maybe about two weeks ago, I know that APHIS released kind of a, an updated statement uh, about the current findings of how uh, they're, they're assuming that this is spreading. And it, it was really kind of included everything under the sun from possibly wild birds uh, gaining some access to, to the houses through small openings mice and rodents, uh, of course, heading out to the field and then coming back over to, to the farm and, and accessing inside the house from the fur and, of course, the feed tracking it in. They talked about um, uh, possibly, again, again, the feed trucks and, and human air going from farm to farm, and you know, whether it be the foot baths or the clothing or the car you know, washing of the tires and wheels and things like that. Um, any new updates on, uh, or has it been... Um, um, on any particular farm where we said, yeah, we're pretty sure it was mice and rats, or we're pretty sure it was maybe some wild birds, or, um, you know, this, this farm had, during this outbreak, it seemed like it was, we looked at the weather pattern, high wind, and, and this probably was, was the issue there, or, you know what, we, we came across this, people have been doing this for a long time, we're humans, uh, we get lax. And it was just at that point maybe a human breakdown of biosecurity because, hey, we've been doing this for 20 years. We've never had a problem. We're doing what we're doing. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. And then all of a sudden, oops, it, 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 it hit us. Uh, at any particular farm, have, have you come close to or assuming, say, we really feel it was mice or we really feel at this farm it was a, a human error? Or is everything still kind of grouped in with these are the possible sources? And we may never know exactly for, for farm to farm, but we feel it's pretty much these issues. Yeah, let me answer that like this. Um, okay. I think the initial introductions were wild birds. I think we're pretty sure of that. I do mm -hmm. think that there are there are ongoing studies of wind currents that are being looked at and how they may have affected barns and how being in association or in a circle where there already was infection it would increase the likelihood of you becoming infected. Okay. So there goes the, 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 so with that goes the idea of when these birds get infected, we have to euthanize them quickly or put them down quickly. We have to come up with techniques that allow us to do that, that are both humane and can deal with the disease. So we're, we struggled with that in this outbreak. That's, that, that's just the simple truth. If we couldn't get to the birds and get them euthanized as quickly as we could, as we, as we needed to. Uh, many factories were involved in that, but so initially those were some of the infections that went on. Then we have genetic evidence 
of, of spread by by the individual human, by by the farms themselves. Okay, that wasn't the rule, but it happened. And and every outbreak of high path across the world, that's been demonstrated that initial sources are introduced, the farms become infected, and then despite the best possibility, sometimes, especially if you don't know that you're infected, you move things around, you share equipment, personnel, uh, they move between houses, they can they can move this virus very easily. And everything you said about mice and rats and birds, they can carry this stuff very easily. It's a fomite spread disease. So fomite means it's a piece of, it's it's the virus, it's in a package, and it can move on fur, it can move on clothing, it can move on gloves, uh, it can move very easily on machinery. Uh, you can move it without knowing it, and you may not have clinical signs in a in a barn that has been affected, you may move to another barn thinking you're, everything's fine and your passport security practices worked, but now all of a sudden you have the virus and they don't work. So you have to seclude and every house has to be treated differently and separated and otherwise you just move the virus. There was one evidence of an individual that uh, was picking up the, the mortality from house to house and they could, they could actually follow where he went. He started in he went into an infected house, and from that point on, they didn't know it was infected. Each house that he went to became infected, or he gathered the mortality. So, yes, this virus can spread very easily, uh, unbeknownst to the, even the, the producers that they have it, because they don't see clinical signs right away that, that the birds don't appear ill until they're already shedding the virus. And so if you're not testing every day, you can miss it. You can also spread it without knowing. So. And the, the the way we raise poultry, uh, the concentrations we have, um, we've done it for efficiency, and it's worked really well. It's economical, it's efficient. That's why we have cheap cheap poultry and eggs, and it's been a good thing. But this virus has put new challenges on the table for us in in, in our in our rearing methods, and we're going to have to look at that and and come up with some new ideas on how to battle this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've been, uh, we're running out of time. I uh, don't want to uh, take too much more of your time, but I have just two more questions. One uh, has to deal with um, a, a possible vaccine on the horizon. Um, I know we had talked a little bit about this with someone with USDA back in the summer, right after, or, I'm sorry, uh, uh, last late last year uh, when it was over in Oregon and California and Washington uh, talking about um, uh, the vaccine issue and um if how they we may not ever get around to it being mandatory to vaccine every single bird uh, in America, and that you know we're still work on maybe if we have a bout break and, and vaccine at that point, and, and all these different things and scenarios that could come about. Um, has there been any more talk? Now we've seen the extent of of this outbreak um, about um, I don't know changing attitudes of well. Maybe we do need to put more emphasis in, in, in uh, developing a, a vaccine, and then, or is, is that still um, probably not the route that we want to go and, and, and go back to good biosecurity, practicing this, keeping an eye out, being uh, identifying it sooner and faster if we can, uh, versus just uh, falling back on, hey, we'll just vaccinate every bird and, and try to develop this. And, and so, basically, that the vaccine question: uh, Are we looking at that? If we are ETA and, and is it going to be full blown every bird or just in specific areas where maybe there'd be an outbreak? 
Tony, you're right. Good bile security is, is a good ticket, and so is good bile surveillance. So what you're doing is you know, with bile security, you're preventing as best you can that virus from getting in your birds. With bile surveillance, you're looking, you're testing, you're being vigilant to see if it gets introduced. But let's talk about the vaccine. USDA has not abandoned the use of vaccine as a possible tool. We're still looking into that. We want a good tool to match the virus, and that's efficacious. There are drawbacks with vaccine, of course, in that this virus is a changing virus. So we may develop a vaccine for the current outbreak virus. And this virus could easily change by the fall or even by the spring when these birds are, are migrating. It might be different. And our, our virus that we developed that we felt was just efficacious and, and, and would, would work may not work in the fall. For instance, how good was the vaccine that was developed for humans this year? They missed the mark. Yeah, they, the CDC, we hear that they just kind of guess or, okay, we, we think this is what we'll see this flu season, and so we'll make sure. uh, however many millions of these here exactly. I was going to mention that uh, when you were finished. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the same challenge we'll face with the development of an animal vaccine for birds. So let's, let's, let's say that we do develop one, and, and then you have the trade question. USDA, we, 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 move and export a lot of poultry and poultry and eggs and mm-hmm. chicks where that where we provide ninety percent I think it was sixty to ninety percent of the poultry and chicks are, are just exported come from the United States. That's a lot of lot of uh, eggs and chicks. So they don't want a vaccine because our trading partners would say, Well, you're vaccinating, you have the disease, you don't have it under control, uh, right. we're not gonna risk taking eggs and chicks from you. That's 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 a challenge, and then the, the broilers who are who haven't been affected broiler industry, they're in the same in the same mode as the as the primary breeders saying, uh, we don't really want to vaccinate because we're exporting and that'll shut down our exports. Now, not all countries will shut that down, but some have said they would. Uh, we were fortunate in this outbreak that we maintained about 84% of our export trade, but some countries just flat said, I don't want any, we won't take anything from the whole United States. We want to try to work with countries to regionalize that and say, here's where our outbreak is. Here's perhaps where we are using vaccine. Can you not consider that? Uh, some will, some won't. So we'll have to navigate the vaccine uh, issue very carefully to not affect, to, to try to use it as a tool if we need it, but not affect trade and not, not impact that. So it'll depend on the level of outbreak, the efficacy efficaciousness of the vaccine that gets developed and and what what sectors are are infected and how how um, prudent would be the use can we eradicate without it uh, stamping out has been and that's the way we did it in Iowa and Minnesota and across the nation for this outbreak that's the accepted way it's also a, a very expensive way what vaccine does for me as a as a person that fights that disease is it allows me time to get in there because I know if birds are vaccinated, they're still going to get infected, just like we still got the flu. Even people who get vaccinated, they may still get the flu, even if the target, if, if the vaccine is very effective. So if, if we say that the vaccine is 60% effective, that tells people that if we vaccinate the whole house of birds, 60% are going to develop an immune response. doesn't mean they won't get the disease. They just develop an immune response. They shed less virus. When they do get infected, they are less sick. We still have to depopulate them. But in fighting the disease, it allows you time to get in there 
because a, a, a vaccinated population sheds less virus. I can get in there more quickly. I can deal with the disease. Perhaps I can prevent spread. That's that's the tool, and that's why it works. Forty percent of the birds will have no immunity, so they're going to get the disease, and they're going to shed virus at large volume, like they normally would. So that's a tool that, as a, as a person that goes out and works with disease, fights disease, tries to eradicate disease, it's a tool that, you know, as USDA, we would want to definitely look at and keep in our toolbox, and not, but we have to use that tool in conjunction and consideration with trade and the outbreak and how well we can work with our trading partners to deal with both the vaccine and the virus and the trade issue. Does that make That's sense? Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. And it's, it's one of, again, kind of shows that uh, a lot that there's the, the general public just the information we don't have so we just don't think about things like that so it is shedding great light and my last question before i let you go and to uh to dealing with this outbreak is uh our expectations for this fall the last few um articles that were written you know nationwide in the media was our terms were used like cautious concerned uh ex- expecting and and for for this fall when the birds start to migrate back south and, and a lot of the emphasis on those last few news articles uh, with, you know, using concerned and, and um, I'm trying to think of the other one I had, but um, is the, is the spread of it specifically on the East coast where now a totally different aspect. We've gone from layers to the East coast. Uh, I'm born and raised in, in Georgia. I think we produce more broilers than any state in the, in the union. And, um, yes, but, but you got the, the, um, uh, the, the companies up in the Delmarva Peninsula. So I guess what what are we thinking? Uh, of course, we all hope <laughs> we don't see it again this fall, and it doesn't get over there to our brewers on the East Coast, and, and we all are obviously hoping for that. But uh, being realistic, um, the, is it a concern? Is it a, um, a more than likely? Is it a, you know, it's, it's bound to happen type thing now that it is here, uh, and are we really focusing on, on the East Coast this fall? Well, I think I'll answer it like this. Um, mm-hmm. USDA is preparing for the worst-case scenario, so we're looking at how it could possibly spread. And naturally, East Coast hasn't, hasn't seen it, so there's a population of birds. Uh, we think that it's very possible that it could be mixing right now. Northern nesting grounds, those birds could be mixing. Mississippi flyaway and Missouri flyaway birds could be mixing with the Atlantic Coast flyaway birds. And they're a naive population, so they haven't seen the virus, so they may very well carry it or have it or be exposed to it on their fall migration. So, And the best time for the flu, of course, as we know, is spring and fall. So if they have it, then what what we're preaching is vigilance. We've got to be on our guard. We've got to be looking for it. And we know it's out there. We know it's in the birds. It may have changed. It may be different. We just have to we have to be on our guards. Any birds that are sick, any birds that increase in mortality, we want people to be checking that. They want we want them to be testing. We want them to be notifying their local state uh, veterinary personnel or their their uh, departments of ag and working with uh, USDA to get that information out and call that in as quickly as possible. We can get out there, test it. If it, if they're positive, that we can get out there and put those birds down as quickly as possible before it spreads to other birds. Now, you ask, will fall be? No one can predict what the fall will look like or the spring. 
um, different folks have looked at the patterns and said, well, fall, the birds pretty much scoot. They get down to where they're going to nest and they don't mess around. But mm-hmm. that's true for some birds and other birds sort of migrate based on where the weather pushes them. In the mm-hmm. spring, they don't have a choice and they come up. They they can only go so far if the water, if the, if the lakes are frozen, the rivers are still iced over, those birds stop until that opens up. And that's when they can stop and spread the virus. So I personally believe that the fall we'll see some, we may see some outbreaks won't be anything like what's what we'll see what we saw in the spring in Iowa perhaps that's just a guess I don't know uh, we need to be vigilant on both spring and fall because this virus until we can test the wild birds and we know or we see evidence that it's changed mutated to something that's non-pathogenic or it's completely reverted and disappeared we have to be on our guards and be checking that's and I guess I and I guess everybody, both the, the backyard, uh, poultry keepers, the, the hobbyists, the, the, the free-range folks that do it, um, uh, uh, raise small flock poultry, and, of course, even the uh, the big commercial folks. Uh, I'm sure now we're saying, you know, this is here. Look what's happened. We need to really make sure we concentrate and implement uh, our biosecurity. We can't get lax. Oh, this has never happened. Oh, you know, we do this all the time, and we've never had a problem. But now we yeah. we have this year, so say hey, you know, uh, you know the the food, uh, the the grain trucks coming on and off the property, the employees to put bass, the, the gowns, and 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 really being diligent with the rodent control and making sure all those little holes where the wild birds can fly in on occasion to get that grain uh, are patched up and just doing whatever they can uh, that we know that can help pre- prevent this. It's kind of like when when I'm doing my workshops and I'll hand out the biosecurity booklets. And there's a lot of information in there, and I, I try to keep it real for these folks. You know, the urban, I have six pet chickens in my backyard, and, and I'm like, you know, read it cover to cover, yes, and then implement what you feel like you can implement and stick with. It doesn't make any sense. I can do this all, and then all of a sudden, after a week, it, it, you, it, you know, it, it loses its newness, and you're not doing anything versus saying, okay, look, how easy it is to use um, the hand sanitizer mounted in a coffee can on your coop before and after, um, you know, going and buying a $10 pair of designated boots you only wear in your backyard with the chickens. Those two things, there's a big step towards good biosecurity, and those are probably pretty easy for you to do here in, the, in your urban backyard, where I understand, regardless of, of how we may like them to do it, um, uh, to, to use a stereotype, a soccer mom with six chickens in suburbia is going to wash her wheels after coming back from the feed store every week. Um, sure. you know, uh, we, we get that. So it's like, you know, I try to say, be sensible, be realistic. Um, if you want to start doing that, great. But you, you know, we, we're human. We know they're probably not going to do. So pick these things that you can do that you think you can continue to do, whether it's a footpath, designated boots, hand sanitizer, not sharing tools. So some of the simple things, I know something seems a little bit out there. I don't, I, I can't stop every time I come back from, from the feed and feed to find a car wash and wash my tires. But yet the commercial folks, probably are doing that and uh, we'll probably do it more this fall now that we have the, uh, the outbreak. So um, Doc, thanks very much for, for joining us today. I've taken plenty of your time, but it was fascinating information. I think, uh, again, always, uh, whenever I interview and do interviews uh, 10 minutes after, I'm like, oh, I meant to ask that or I meant to say this. So maybe later, uh, maybe even um, this uh, um, spring, 
we can have you on, and uh, we'll all keep our fingers crossed that we don't see this and it doesn't rear its ugly head again. But uh, for right now, thank you very much for coming on and giving us uh, an update on the current outbreak and talking about biosecurity and answering some of the popular questions that are out there from the backyarders. Um, and um, we wish you luck in, in fighting this, and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andy. And I wanted to thank you for the work you're doing and keeping the backyard folks informed because a lot of what we deal with with these viruses is rumor and information, like you said, that we can get out and the, and the information we can share, the better off we're all going to be. And it's a partnership between everybody, the commercial, the backyard, the federal regulators, the state regulators, we all got to work together in this case. So what you're doing, I really appreciate, and I appreciate the opportunity, and I'll be glad to come back sometime and speak with you again about where we're at with things. So thank you. That's super. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for coming on, Doc. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All right, that's Dr. Jack Shear, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, Ph.D., Associate Deputy Administrator for Veterinary Services under USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, APHIS. And you all all know uh, that I'm the national spokesperson for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds uh, program, and uh, I think five years running now, and um, I really enjoy it. It's getting that information out there and, and keeping it real. Um, and, and just like I explained earlier, you know, read this booklet cover to cover and then choose some things that make sense for your operation. You've got six pet birds in your backyard. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've completely been there, done that, understand that uh, the family of four is not going to be stopping and washing their tires after they go to the local feed and feed. In, in most all cases, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah, if there's an outbreak six miles away, you, you might do that, you know, it's a cause and effect. But on a regular basis, it's having that uh, metal coffee can nailed to the side of your coop and having some hand sanitizer in there before and after you take care of your backyard poultry, the designated boots, uh, that you only wear in your backyard. You don't wear them to your neighbors. You don't wear them to the feed store, just in your backyard and only in your backyard. Um, maybe having a foot bath as well. If you do wear those boots um, elsewhere outside of your yard, making sure you do the good uh, foot bath. Don't share tools. Or you know, Both of you may have uh, uh, chickens in your backyard. Hey, can I borrow your, your poop rake for a minute to clean my poop? Mine broke last week. No, I don't think that's a good idea. Just uh, the shovel to clean out the poop or, or things like that. Um, so it can be these are simple things that you can do to try to implement biosecurity. We talked uh, about, and it was recommended if an outbreak occurs near you, uh, to covering that run with a tarp um, and keeping your birds more quarantined, if you will, if, it, if it's near you. Definitely, and we have preached this for years, do your best to eliminate wild birds in your backyard. This means removing the wild bird feeders from your backyard. This means removing the wild bird bats from your backyard. Uh, because not just avian influenza, uh, but there are many other diseases uh, like salmonella that can come from um, wild birds. So uh, it's recommended uh, not, you know, put them in your front yard and or to get rid of them all together. But your your front yard, if if you still get enjoyment out of attracting some wild birds, yes, you're going to have the occasional bird in your backyard. Yes, they you may have the occasional bird try to fly into your coop to get that chicken feed. But actually attracting them with wild bird feeders and wild bird baths. It's just nothing really good can come out of that if you have backyard chickens. So we talk about that. We talk about rodent control till we're blue in the face. And and if you see one mouse, you've got more. And you need to wage World War III on them uh, so it doesn't become an infestation because they can carry many diseases that affect your flock and your family. 
So, so we've talked about that. You can go back and listen and want, listen to the archives um, where we've had those topics about rodent control. There's an article in the summer issue of Chicken Whisper Magazine about rodent control um, and, and about eliminating uh, the, the, you know, the, the dangers of attracting wild birds to your backyard. Summer issue uh, 2014 in Chicken Whisper Magazine. So, um, again, it all goes back to, to, to biosecurity. We did ask some, some important questions to Doc, and uh, I was very impressed with the, with the answers we got. And um, he talked about the efficient way that uh, we are raising poultry. That he even said they're looking at maybe different ways of rearing the birds, um, maybe to eliminate the massive number of, of infections or, or calling uh, based on raising a lot of birds in, in one area. Uh, to try to, you know, why? Why, you may ask? So you can have a chicken McNugget meal for 99 cents at the fast food restaurant. Um, and it's one of those things where I'll see folks on blogs and forums um, post uh, pictures of, of a big broiler truck going going uh, down the road. And they may say something like, oh, I'm totally appalled at that, or this is why I raise backyard chickens. But I can tell you, and let's keep it fair, if you have ever eaten out at a restaurant, okay, if you've ever had a fast food chicken sandwich, if you've ever had chicken nuggets, whether it be from the store or at fast food, or maybe even Applebee's, or maybe even um, O'Charlie's, or any any main chain restaurant like that, Red Lobster, Olive Garden, you get uh, chicken in your Alfredo, guess what? P- point the finger back at you. Um, because I don't think anybody is exempt from this when we see that, at least not all your life. Maybe now you've changed and you're like, hey, I'm only buying. So, so it's one of those things people will see that and they're like, oh, this, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, hey, you know why? Because people want a $1.95 chicken sandwich when they're riding down the road. They want that $8.95 chicken Alfredo at Olive Garden. They want that. So there you go. Um, a, 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 an inexpensive protein source for folks on limited budget. Chicken is cheap. It is a cheap protein source. The eggs uh, are, are fairly you know, affordable, cheap protein source for families uh, that may cannot afford a $28 whole chicken that was raised on grass. So, um, you know, you, you just try to look at this information and, and walk that line and, and pick and choose. So it's not, I don't think, just a cut and dry that oh, we need to eliminate raising chickens like that uh, only by pasture raised, only by organic, only, you know, and then you've got folks that are making minimum wage that are working hard enough just to try to buy some some, some chicken breast at the store let alone a $25, $30 whole chicken um, or a $15 or $20 whole chicken. So it's just one of those things to look at, but I know that's often mentioned on the blogs and forums when we talk about including this outbreak and everybody's pointing fingers. So just walk that fine line, look at it both sides. A lot of the interesting things were said on on this episode that that makes some sense. It plays up a lot of things for for some people. So I really want to thank you very much for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Combox Feed, special Friday edition where we were talking about uh, the current um, avian influenza outbreak, which, again, it's been about 30 days since we've had any type of new discovery or outbreak of the avian influenza, so that is a good thing. And we'll all have our eyes on uh, this uh, this fall uh, and this winter when the migration starts uh, again. So you can listen to this archive if you turn this show. Uh, it's all archived, tuned in halfway through and want to listen to it again, probably about five to ten minutes after the show. Uh, we wrap it up here in a few minutes. Um, it'll be archived. You can listen 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
uh, as all of our episodes. This happens to be episode 1016. So there's 1,015 other episodes you can listen to uh, about all different types of uh, poultry topics and keeping your backyard birds healthy. Uh, we would love for you to descri- subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer Magazine. That's chickenwhisperermagazine.com. Uh, we've got a great contest going over there for an awesome chicken coop from Urban Coop Company. And uh, you can go over there and, and check that out and uh, register to win that. But also subscribe. Totally free, four times a year. It'll be emailed to you, the entire issue. If you like a physical magazine that you can sit in your easy chair and flip through and read on a Saturday afternoon, we can accommodate you. $9.95 for the whole year, and you'll get that issue four times a year, mailed right to your mailbox. And um, uh, fact-based, science-based, study-based information that you can that can help you raise uh, a good, healthy backyard flock. So thank you very much for tuning in today. Our next show will be this coming Monday. We'll have Peter Brown, the chicken doctor, joining us next Thursday. Uh, poultry today with Dr. McCray. That'll be next Thursday. And then maybe later today or tomorrow, I'll be sharing uh, a little bit about that study or the research done uh, about beak trimming. Uh, very interesting information coming about I got this morning. It hasn't even been published yet. And so we'll try to get ahead of the game here and, and post that for our fans and listeners and, and viewers in the whole nine yards about beak trimming and how, and we know why they do that. Um, we know why they do that and how they do that. But an uh, interesting study about how that may actually um, reduce the effectiveness uh, of them being able to preen uh, and uh, clean themselves from mites and lice versus if they weren't uh, beak trimmed. So very, informa- very important information, and a lot of our fans will be interested in that um, and, uh, and, and the, the research behind that. So that's new. We'll be talking about that next Thursday as well. So uh, we appreciate you tuning in today. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful and fabulous weekend with family and friends, and uh, we'll see you Monday with another great episode of Ask the Chicken Doctor with uh, Peter Brown. So have a great weekend, everybody. God bless. <laughs> Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.